Well, before Chris comes up to share the lesson with us this morning, uh, Rachel and I want to uh, tell you about a really unique opportunity that's coming up for us at Grace Chapel here. Uh, my name is Kevin Schwieger. For those of you who don't know me on staff here at Grace, and this is... I'm Rachel Burrell. Um, I teach Zumba here. Some of you know me through there. Well, most of you are well aware of our Grace Impact Center and the renovations over there and the uh, hordes of people that are now using our facility. And we're beginning to do some really unique and, and interesting and fun ministry over there on the, on the basketball court and the soccer field. But uh, always looking for some innovative, creative, uh, novelty kinds of things to do just to impact our community. And we have a really, really cool opportunity coming up in the first two weeks of August. Um, Many of the, well, throughout the Commonwealth countries, which are former British colonies, uh, some of Europe, most of Africa, New Zealand, Australia, uh, those are called the Commonwealth countries. And in those countries, there is a sport called netball, which is hugely popular. And we don't understand that because we've never heard of it here in the United States. But if you go to one of those countries, you live and breathe netball uh, more so than March Madness. And it's a women's sport, actually. And I happen to have a very good friend in Kenya who, in their church, the coach of the national netball team is in their church. And so in early August, first couple of weeks of August, we're putting together a team of individuals from Grace Chapel. We're going to go do a backwards missions trip, like a missions trip in reverse, in that we're going to go and be the campers, the learners, to learn this sport, be taught the sport of netball, and then bring that back here to Grace Chapel Use it as a novelty to begin some leagues and tournaments and just fun stuff using that sport to impact our community. When I, you know, I've dealt with Rachel with Zumba and, and just being a friend and all. And when I told her that story, she positively started bubbles coming out of her head and everything. It was crazy. And I'll let her tell you why. Okay, so a little background real quick. Um, I've been going to Grace for about 10 years now, and all throughout high school, um, I was able to go to Mexico with back-to-back -back every summer. And um, when I was about 14 or 15, my dad actually went to Nigeria on one of the first trips to set up the mission field there. And um, I can't really explain how or why, but the minute he went he came back, I just became just – I was so passionate about Africa, and I really – um, wanted to go and all throughout going to Mexico every year. I was like one day I'm gonna go to Africa and my dad and I always talked about it and um, You know I went to school and by the time you know you do that and you come back It's been about five years and I have not been on a missions trip and this past winter I really started thinking about it and just praying about it and really wanting to find a way to go and for me You know selfishly. I'm like I want to go to Africa. That would be so awesome but um, really just started praying about it and actually on January 1st Really, you know, everyone makes goals on January 1st, and um, I put in my goals for the year that I wanted to be at least planning a trip. I was like, if I can just find something to do or go on, that would be great. So I was, you know, really praying about it, and um, on January 3rd or 4th, I forget which one, Kevin called me, and, you know, he, like he said, I had just been dealing with him through Zumba and just hardly, you know, didn't really know him all that well, and he called me, and he's like, I have this crazy idea, and I just thought I would tell you about it, and starts telling me about this trip to Africa, and I'm, like, holding the phone to the side, crying. I'm like, this is just crazy. What are the chances that he would call me within three days of me praying about it? So, of course, I jumped on the idea. I would have never thought that my first trip to Africa would be to learn netball, and we're also going to be doing some work in orphanages and um, a safari as well, which will be fun, but, um, but I was just so excited about it. So, we wanted to share with you guys that we are looking for a couple more people to go. Um, whether or not you're super athletic or not, it doesn't matter. Um, we're looking for a couple people that are interested in um, joining us on the trip. And um, we're going to be doing a meeting this Thursday, so we don't take up the whole sermon right now. Uh, for 20 or 30 minutes at 7.30 on Thursday evening, we'll be meeting in the warehouse across from this building to give you a little bit more information. So if you at all are interested, um, maybe pray about it this week. We'd love to have you come out and just learn a little bit more about the trip. Um, and maybe if this isn't quite your time or you're just, you know, maybe it's not something you can do this year, but you feel led to contribute to the trip, we do have a p couple people that are really interested in going but that are working on um, financially coming up with the funds. So if anyone is interested as well in um, maybe sponsoring someone else to go, that would be great as well. So talk to Kevin or myself. And, again, if you're interested, we'd love to see you Thursday evening.
for those of you I, I haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Chris. I um, am on staff with Back to Back Ministries as the director of Impact of uh, 121, which is a ministry that bridges the gap between youth culture and the church. So I spend most of my time uh, working with high school students and trying to figure out how we can get the gospel into high schools and into the lives of high school students so that it is the prevalent way in which they live life so that it can transform the world through their understanding of the gospel. And in the past few months, I've traveled from Michigan. We know they need the gospel there. Um, if you're a Buckeye fan, you really agree with me. And uh, all the way down to Monterey in Mexico, where this past February we did a youth conference for um, 87 of the junior high high school orphans that are in the orphanages around back-to-back's property there, that we took them away, did a, a, a retreat for them. And I'm going to share a little bit about that with you later. But uh, in that tour, in that movement from Michigan to Monterey, it was a great reminder for me of how deeply we all need to know the fullness of who Jesus is. That at times uh, we root ourselves in the past of what Jesus has done and we long for the future of what Jesus is going to do. But living in the present of what Jesus is doing for us, on our behalf, with us, through us, and in his kingdom, we often skip that piece and we miss out on how to actually live in the fullness of the resurrected Jesus Christ right now. And I think the Mad Hatter may have said it best when he said to Alice, there's cake yesterday. There was there will be cake tomorrow, but there's no cake today. There's never cake today. And so often when it comes to Jesus, we look and go, there was Jesus yesterday in my saving moment, in that moment that I said, I surrender my life to him. There was there was cake on Easter for sure. On Easter Sunday, when we claim the resurrection of Jesus and we claim that we live in that resurrection, yes, let there be cake. And when Jesus comes back in his, resur- in his second coming to redeem us back to him, and there'll be no weeping, no suffering, no pain, no death, no curse, no nothing left in this world, and it will all be redeemed to him, there'll be cake then. But right now, there's no cake. I don't see much Jesus in my everyday life. I don't see much resurrection power today. And my hope is that this morning together, we would go on a journey through the post-resurrected Jesus Christ together in a way that would allow us to eat cake now. That we would experience the fullness of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brought to earth to dwell with us and amongst us and on our behalf in our present as much as in our past and as much as in our future. We won't neglect our past. We should never neglect the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love that every year on one date at the end of Passover weekend, we claim a resurrected Jesus every year and churches are filled and masses come in and Pastors all over Twitter Nation will tweet, how many people came to church on this day? I'm great with it. But what about the Sunday after? Do we completely find fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus this Sunday like we did last Sunday? And if we on an individual level in our daily lives would choose to be full of the power of the resurrected Jesus every day of the present, then you will find what Jesus really meant when he came to say, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. He wants to redeem our now. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would redeem our now. In this present moment, God, that there would be cake today. The fullness of your gospel, the sweetness of it, the satisfaction, the fulfillment of it in our lives would happen today in our circumstances, in our life, in this moment, in our present. Jesus, I pray in the next few moments you would teach us to root our faith in the things seen and the things yet unseen and that you would pour out your blessing on us in those things yet unseen. 
pray that your story would bring life to us and that we would see that there is no one greater. End of story. No one greater than you. It's through your crucifixion and your resurrection that we claim this prayer. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, my, my, singular, they are mine, Kentucky Wildcats won a national champion. You are a true blue fan of the University of Kentucky Wildcats if you claim them in the singular form. We are such a crazy state that we will fight each other over whose Wildcats they are. I heard the other day Ron Bershiro was in a meeting and he said, my Kentucky Wildcats, I was like, uh-uh, they're mine, man. Those are my Wildcats and they won me an eighth national championship. And I greatly appreciate it and I'm waiting on the ring to come in the mail or the invitation to Rupp Arena to celebrate with them. I watched in front of my television at my house with people around, which is a bad call for me. I always invite people to big games, and I never should because I'm such a bad host when it comes to a game I care about. And I'm dialed in to the, this UK game. I'm nervous all day. I'm such a weird guy. You know, it's like I have so many issues. And I'm like, I'm nervous about a basketball game that I'm not playing in that I am watching from a few states away on a television being played by people that I probably will never see again in my life. And I'm like, but I'm nervous all day. And Sarah's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm nervous about this game. She's like, don't worry, babe. We've got this one in the back. I'm like, don't say that. You cannot say that. Do you not remember Christian Leitner and what he did to us? It's, I mean, they're still playing that stupid clip. I will never ship a package through UPS again. Ever. Ever. I claim, I'm like, UK nation, we will never use UPS because you keep showing that shot. It takes this special logistics. I'll show you logistics. We have a banner. Um, and, and I'm like, I can't do it. And I'm, she's like, why are you nervous? I'm like, I don't know, but this is a big game. It's been 14 years since we won a title, and everybody is reminding us of that. ESPN keeps reminding us of that. Indiana wants to remind us of this shot that they hit at the end of a game. We're playing in the national title, and we beat you to get here. And I'm like, we've, this is a big day for my Wildcats. And I watch nervously pacing at sometimes ignoring the world around me, having this major dialogue in my own head with myself about what they should be doing on the court, praising Jesus that they set Marcus Teague so that we could win. And I'm looking at it going, okay, now we're going to win. And we get to the end of the game, and UK wins, and real UK fans, you know, may do the pump of the fist, may do some high fives, we may celebrate. We don't burn our own town down. Um, you know, those are just dumb college kids that did that on our behalf, that burned down Lexington in the next few hours. I'm like, what is wrong with you? You're not a really UK fan, you're just a college kid. And we're all going, yeah, we're back. Duke went out in the second round. We beat Indiana and Louisville to get here, and Ohio State just got scared and didn't show up. And I'm like, yeah, I love Ohio State football, okay? We don't have that in Kentucky. I'm an Ohio State football fan, but basketball, that's our sport. And I'm watching the whole thing go down, and I'm like, yes. And then I see my team put their shirts on and their hats on, and their hats say, no one greater. And I looked at that, and everything in life for me is a sermon. Everything. It drives my family nuts. Everything's a sermon. Every song I listen to, I'm like, how is Justin Bieber a sermon? Okay, that's not a sermon. Um, let's watch Hunger Games. I can preach that. Um, and everything, and I'm watching this no one greater thing on their hats, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, huh, hmm, interesting, Nike, that that's what you wanted to go with. Is no one greater. It's not like the players went in the locker room and said, what do we want to be called when we win the national title? They didn't do that. They just wanted to be called NBA players when they won the national title. They don't care about what's on the name of their hat. And, and Nike is like, we want, this is the branding that we want. We want you to know there is no one greater, and there's a Nike swoosh right next to it, and there is no one greater than this team. And I look at it, and I'm like, yes, I'm so glad that there is no one greater than my team. But then I immediately have to start quantifying it. And even the t-shirts, there's t-shirts that say, no one greater. And immediately the t-shirt itself starts to quantify the greatness of the no one that is greater than the University of Kentucky Wildcats. Because it's the 2012 national champions. So there is no one greater in college basketball until 2013. Then our NBA Wildcats will either be national champions again next year or... 
someone else is going to make a run. As long as it's not Duke, I'm okay with it. Okay. And someone else will become greater. And then the discussion will be who's the greatest of all time. But you have to quantify then the number one greatest ever. And it only lives a short time. And as I'm looking at this hat, I'm like, man, isn't that everything in our life? Everything is the greatest thing ever until it's not. Twilight was the greatest thing ever. Praise Jesus until it wasn't. And now Hunger Games is out and it's the greatest thing ever until it's not. Justin Bieber was the greatest thing ever. Will someone please make him not? Please, let's start praying, fasting. Let's start up a boiler room. Let's just pray 24-7 until it happens. And until it's not, it's the greatest thing I've ever been a part of in my life. Until it's not. Until something greater comes along. Unless you know Jesus. And the beauty of God with us is that there's no quantifying that. No one greater. End of story. No one, you can't quantify it. You can't quantify the greatness of the creator of the universe that spoke the world into existence, that led an entire nation to know his story through the Old Testament, that began prophesying over the redemption of a fallen creation years and years and years before that redemption was going to take place, that lived life perfectly among men and women and existed here to fulfill all of that prophecy and then took the most gruesome, disgusting, disturbing, Disturbing ways to die in order to redeem all of that creation and then showed himself as a resurrected Messiah three days later. You can't quantify that. Because in 2013, no one beats that. There is no, I have the best Jesus until I don't. You either have the best Jesus or you don't. But yet, on my daily life, in the margins between Sundays, I put a lot of quantifying around Jesus. My finances have a lid on how powerful Jesus is. My marriage sometimes has a lid on how powerful Jesus is. My parenting sometimes has a lid on how great God is. My music has... A quantified establishment, my worship does, my work ethic, my relationships at work. Everything that we have in life, we have this quantity that we place in the power of God because so much time we spend in our lives either trying to get away and let God just be great or we try to figure out how much God believes about our greatness. And that's where we end up quantifying God and getting in trouble. It's because in our efforts to keep God from being quantified, we quantify how much God loves us, and then we start to compare. And then we start to figure out, based on what God's doing for you or for you or for me, how much does He love me based on how much I'm seeing how He loves you. And if I start to quantify how much I am loved and what I'm willing to surrender to God, I'm in essence quantifying God himself. Because I'm putting boundaries on it and I'm saying that in order for God to love me with the fullness that he says he's going to, he has to love me the way I interpret that he loves you. He has to heal me the way you told me that he healed you. He has to fix me on the timetable that I saw him fix you. And if that doesn't happen, then I start questioning God. I question his existence sometimes. You question if you're doing it right. Is he really about fixing this stuff? And we begin to quantify the greatness of God dependent on how great we think we are. I heard a basketball announcer, Clark Kellogg, he's going to be uh, honored at uh, Athletes in Action Night of Champions in a, in a couple of weeks as a, 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 a Christian man who is living in this college basketball world. And he said, everyone has an ego. It just depends on what ego that you want to have. Do you want to have the ego that edifies God only or that edits God out? 
And I think when we come to the greatness of God, when we start to edit God out of our now, our daily experiences, every time that we have a moment in a day that we need some type of help or we draw some attention to it, when we edit God out, we quantify his greatness. Because we say, you can't touch this one. You're strong, but maybe not strong enough for this. You're Savior, but I need to get myself out of this hole. You're Redeemer, but you want me to fix this one myself, and then I'll get back to you. It's not how Jesus teaches his kingdom exists on this earth right now. It's not how he built it before he left. It's not what he's longing to return to. He left saying... I am greater than all of your circumstances, each and every one of you. It's why he never healed the same way twice. He never responded in the same parable. He said, I am in the present, dealing with the present in the way that the present needs to meet greatness. And he wants to meet your present with greatness today. And I think we need a dose of greatness today. I know that I woke up this morning needing a dose of greatness. And it's not in here. And it's not in here. It's not mine to give. It's not my greatness. But it's His. And He wants to pour it out on us. We're going to dive into the text of John chapter 20. We're going to sit in verses 28 and 29 for a minute. But I want to set this stage for you. Most of you know the story. That Jesus resurrects on what we call Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. That we know that he is not in the grave. Whether he was in the grave until Sunday morning or not, and we don't know. We know where he wasn't. He wasn't in hell beating up on Satan all weekend. From the moment that Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Until he said, it is finished. All that needed to be done in order to redeem your past, present, and future sin was done. Satan's not that cool that he needed a weekend to get beat up. He's not. He was judged in a moment. In a moment, all of our sin and death, when Jesus took on death, which simply Jesus defines in the, in the testimony of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes home, the father says, he was dead and now he's alive. Separation from God is Jesus' definition of death. And he says, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, when God separated himself from Jesus, Jesus was dead. When he said, it is finished, he starts praying over people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He finishes it. He is forsaken. And he starts redeeming it right then. It's awesome. I love the cross. We needed Sunday morning. Jesus and sin and death did not need Sunday morning. We need a resurrected Savior so that people can know that he really conquered death in our understanding of death. Death to us is, we put you in the ground, you don't get out. His definition of death was, God, you left me. You left me with all the stuff of the world, and now I'm sitting here in this, and I've got to engage in all of it, and I've got to overcome it. And he overcame it. They put him in a tomb, and Jesus left. He folded up the shroud that was over his face, so when Peter ran in, he would see it at night. It's neatly folded, and John would write it down. Sunday morning, Mary shows up and says, he's gone. Peter and John have a foot race to see who's still the best disciple. They still haven't gotten it. I'll race you. John's faster. Peter's mad. John gets there first, so Peter goes all the way in. <laughs> John's standing at the door, and Peter's like, it was the first one to touch the shroud. He gets all the way in, and then John comes in. They see Jesus is not there. They go home. Mary stays and soaks in the moment, turns around, and there's Jesus. He's alive. He's resurrected. He says, go home and tell them. They, she goes home. They start praying. It's a good thing to do when you see Jesus. When you hear that he's resurrected. And that evening, Jesus shows up in the room. Everybody's there except we know Thomas. Thomas isn't there. He's on a burrito run or something like that. That's where I would have sent him. And he's not there, but everyone else is. And they give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus that they saw him. And Thomas comes back in and they're like, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We saw Jesus. Nuh-uh. Yeah, he was here. He came in. No, he did not. Uh, mm, we were here. 
you were not. So you will not be the one telling us what we did or did not see, Thomas. I'm telling you, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. And their response is, well, we saw it and we believe it. So you got to figure that one out on your own. We don't know if he's coming back. He didn't leave you a note. Check your phone. Maybe he texted you a picture, you know, Instagrammed it to you while he was in the room. Nothing. And Thomas's response, I'm so thankful for him. Because that's my response a lot. Someone comes and tells me what God did in their life. No, he didn't. Um, yeah, he did. I was there. Yeah, well, biblically, we need to go through, does this match New Testament-wise of how he did that? Because if it doesn't, I'm not going to believe it. Why not? Because if he did that for you and he didn't do that for me, that wrecks my faith. If you saw it and I didn't get to see it, it wrecks my value. I now have to wonder if you are worth more to Jesus than me. And Thomas is asking on our behalf, wait a minute, wait a minute, I wasn't in the room. Are you more important than me? But I'm not going to believe it until I see it because I think I'm worth what you're worth. And all the guys in the room are going, Thomas, the last three years, he has made no sense in anything that he's done. Do you think it's about you that you weren't here in this room? Or maybe it was about the fact that he's not dead. Maybe it's about him a little bit. I know I want it to be about him, but I want it to be about him with me. Him with you does me no good. His greatness in your life doesn't quantify my greatness. I need him with me, so I will not believe until I see him myself. Thank you, Thomas, for asking the question that we all asked, and I will remove the doubtful from your name because I don't want to be called that either. I just praise Jesus that you did it and that John wrote about it because when I wake up some mornings, I want to know if Jesus wants to show up to me too, and I want to know I'm not a jerk for thinking that way. And Jesus didn't fire you, and the disciples didn't stone you. They didn't cast lots and go, okay, now we've got to replace Judas and Thomas because Thomas doesn't trust us. Thomas said, I'll believe it when I see it. And in John chapter 20, verse 28, we have this. I'll start in 26 and read you up to 28. Eight days later, that would be one week. That would be Sunday to Sunday. They counted the day they were on. It's weird. They could count differently than we did. So the next Sunday, the week after the resurrection, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. If the doors are locked and Jesus comes and stands among me, I want him to say, Peace be with me too. Because that would freak me out. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. You see my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, Thomas answered him and said, My Lord, my God. End of story. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. If you read it, and what a Hebrew interpretation of that would be, you would hear it say, My Yahweh and my Yahweh. The great I am and the great I am. My King and God. That's what he said. Now I'll tell you, I'm jealous of Thomas. I don't know what it would be like to rub my hands over that hand and to weep over those holes in his hand while he showed me what it really took to die and to resurrect. And I look at it, and if Thomas, is, as he's rolling over his hand, you have to know it's going through his mind of going, I didn't know by asking, I'll believe when I see it, that I was going to get this, because, man, I don't know that I really wanted to know this, because this is heavy. Like, you, this, and my hand in your, you want me to touch that? And that's, whew. The only response that warranted to an unquantifiable God was simply to say, you're God. And I praise Jesus that Thomas said that. Because maybe we can help some people who are living in some world religions who don't understand Jesus to get to know Jesus. Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door. Go to John 20, 28. What do you do with this? 
Because you undermine my Jesus with what you do with your Jesus because your Jesus doesn't do this. If you have Mormon friends, take them here and have them wrestle with it with you. Because this is the difference between us and the world. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he's looking at the face of a resurrected Jesus Christ, he is saying there is no quantifying Jesus. He is greater than everything. He is my Lord. He is my God. And I'm standing in front of him. And Jesus is loving on Thomas by saying, I don't want anybody who's followed me for the last three years and watched all this happen. I don't want you to disbelieve. You need to touch these hands. Touch these hands, brother. Reach out and touch. And Thomas's response, my Lord and my God, gives us the definition of what faith in Jesus should look like. Is he your God and your God? Is he your God and your servant? Is he your God and your friend? Is he your God and your support system? Your savings account, the rainy day fund. You see that? Or when you have seen him, you see your God and your God. Jesus responds to Thomas' clarification of who he was by saying, Is it because you have seen me? That you've believed. The whole week while I was wrestling with this text, which is usually what I do with God in a text because I don't ever understand what he's really trying to tell me until we wrestle and then he tells me and I look at it and go, okay, yeah, I'm stupid and this is it. You're so much smarter than me and my heart needed to hear this. When I'm looking at this statement, my, my training and the way I grew up would say that this is Jesus rebuking Thomas, which is where we get the doubting stuff from, is that he's looking at him saying, is it Thomas, do I really have to walk back into this room through that door, not you know, open it, but walk literally through it, say, peace be with you, show you my hands? And it was going to take that to get you to believe? Like you have to see me resurrected? Really, Thomas? That's not what the Greek is showing that Jesus is talking to Thomas. He is not shouting at him. He is not yelling at him. He is not condemning him in this passage. If you look at the way it was spoken, it's more like Jesus going, is this what it took to get you, Thomas? Like, I just, is this, did it work? Do you believe me now? Did it work? Did you, did you get what you needed? Because I want you to get what you need. I want you to know me. And as I was wrestling with it all week, when it, and, and I started to personalize it because there's, there's layers to the text. There's, there's what Jesus and Thomas were going through, and we can learn from that. There's what John was trying to do in wrapping up his gospel to people who didn't know Jesus. And in John chapter 1 of saying, no one, in verse 18, no one has seen God. And then he writes in 2028, 20, my Lord and my God. Oh, until now. Love it. John's wrapping up this thing. You know, it's a better ending than Hunger Games got, for sure. And it's like this, wrapping up. No one's seen God, and then at the end he's going, oh, until now, I'm going to show him to you. No one has ever seen him. Thomas said he saw him. Here you go. Nice and tidy. And then there's what Jesus is saying to generations of people that won't be in that room in that moment and won't be in John's church. And I look at that question for me and go, okay, Jesus, if you're looking at me instead of Thomas and saying, is it because you have seen me that you believe? My first reaction is to go, well, I mean, of course, none of us in this room are going to stand in a room and be able to put our hands on top of Jesus' crucified hands. He didn't walk through a door and say, here, touch my side. So, no, I did not get to see. So, in truth, I am part of the, the world afterward that has some faith in the unseen, except that, most of the things that I quantify about God change when I see God. A few years ago, a group of my interns are playing basketball in a gym. Guy falls down, heart stops. They grab someone to start giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It takes forever to get the ambulance there because it's just it's farther away from the, the hospital. They get him into the ER. The prognosis is this girl got his heart started and she saved his life. But 
he was without oxygen long enough to where we're not going to know if he's ever coming out of this coma, if he'll ever speak again, or if he does come out of the coma, if he's going to have any part of his brain that's not destroyed from this moment. Four or five o'clock in the morning, I'm getting messages from these interns and from family saying, Michael's in the hospital, he might die, what are we going to do? The students in my ministry and the adults around it start this 24-7 prayer movement during that week. Three weeks, not a minute was broken, 24 hours a day prayer in this room. We had this set-aside room. You had to be in the room for accountability, praying nonstop for three weeks over Michael and praying that he would wake up and walk. By about the end of the first week, Michael woke up. As he wakes up, he gets a phone at about 3 o'clock in the morning, finds my number we've met once in life, and starts calling me and cussing me out at 3 a.m. Just lacing me. Get the bleep out of my bleeping head, you bleeping bleepity, you know that. You know, some of you've had that history. That stuff was just coming, and I'm like, who is this? This is Michael, get out of my head. Click. Then he would call back, man, Chris, I'm sorry for calling you and telling you to get out of my head. I don't know why. I'm like, I... Who are you? That happened all of week two. 37 phone calls from 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., two or three nights a week, all of them just laced with just all kinds of stuff, hating me, get out of my head. And in the end, would be like, Chris, I love you, man. Thanks for talking. Click. Okay. Before that experience, I have no idea what I believed about spiritual warfare, but I know it was wrong. Because this started happening and I'm like, am I, like, God, are you talking to me? Are you telling me that I'm really in this guy's head and I'm like really a demon and I don't really know what I'm doing? And like, why am I in ministry? They should fire me. (laughs) This is bad. I'm in some guy's head and he's cussing. This is not what pastors do. Most of us, anyway. And he's like, week two, week three, we start having conversations. They start going longer. He's still cussing me out and they're having to change, like, tie his arms down and take phones from him. And he would, he would steal the orderly's phones to call me. I was wrecked, man. I'm like, I, can you admit me now? Because I'm crazy. By week three, I got a phone call from his dad saying, hey, come into the hospital. Michael wants to see you. Should I come armed? Should I, like, do I, should I bring an entourage? Because I could die. And I'm, we've been praying nonstop. I walk into the hospital room. Michael jumps out of his bed walks toward me, hugs me, just grabs me, and is just like, man, if you and those students hadn't been praying 24 hours a day for three weeks straight, he would have gotten me. He wanted my soul. He wanted to take me. Satan was coming after me. He was fighting for me. There was a fight inside of me. And every night when I called you, I remember it. Every night when I called you, you kept fighting for me, and I just wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. I just wanted to die, and you wouldn't let me die. And I'm like a mess at this point going, I was sleeping until you called. What do I believe about spiritual warfare and healing? What I saw God do. And so when Jesus asked Thomas this question, I'm looking at him going, yeah, Jesus, yeah, I believe you because of what I've seen you do. Uh Uh-huh, yep, absolutely. I believe in what I've seen. I'm so glad Thomas asked that question because I'm so glad that we're allowed to ask that question. And I think we shouldn't quantify God by saying, you really follow Jesus when you only believe him in the things that you don't see. When you see things, you should believe in the greatness of Jesus and we should claim them. And we should tell the world about them. And we should stand on the foundation of saying, this is what Jesus is about. Yes, Jesus, when I see you do things, I believe more in you. Uh Uh-huh. Because sometimes it takes me seeing to believe. Thanks for telling me that it's okay to do that and not crucifying Thomas. But then, Jesus takes it to a whole nother level. And he says, blessed are those who do not see, yet they believe. So my answer to the first question is, do you believe because you see? Yeah, I do. Sometimes I need to. Sometimes the people around me need to believe because of what I saw. Do you believe because you don't see? That's a different level of faith. When we were in Monterey... This trip happened in an amazing way. 
And over two years ago now, our Monterey staff was here for strategic planning, and Beth Guckenberger, our director, had spoken at one of my 121 events, and she came back in and was telling all of the staff about this event that we had for high schoolers, and two directors were sitting in the room, and I didn't know it at that moment, but one of the, the director's wives prayed in that moment, God, send him to us because our teenagers need this experience. I didn't know it happened. And two years later, that same couple was hosting a high school retreat in the mountains of Monterey that we had been able to get permission to take all of the high school students out of um, the, the orphanages, put them in buses, drive them into the mountains, give them an American type, I call it an American type because we do it all the time, like retreat at a camp. They go in, here's your dorm, here's your bunk, here's your bathroom, here's all these cool activities, here's all this amazing stuff that we're going to do. They got this amazing, beautiful, beats any camp I've ever spoken at event. It was awesome. In these beautiful mountains, great place. And as we're walking into these cabins, I'm thinking, God, how did you make this happen? Our objective for the weekend was to teach these students through every experiential method that we could that with Jesus they were unbreakable. Jesus wanted to give them a life that no matter what was thrown at them, they would not be broken. Their identity could not be broken with Jesus, but that the lives they had been given, hadn't earned, but had just been born into, were so breakable. They needed to know that Jesus would start over for them. So we were praying about this weekend the whole time, and the students show up, and of course we did all the crazy games that you need to do, and had worship and teaching, and We invited them to look at these mirrors in this little private room that they could go in one at a time. And we asked them the first question that Jesus asked Thomas. What do you see? These kids started writing on the thing what they saw. I see trash. I see a child who's worthless. I see someone whose parents didn't love them. I see hate. I see that God, one one kid wrote, I see that God might use me, but I'll never stop hating my dad, so he probably won't. They wrote layers of garbage that they thought they were on top of these mirrors. Like literally, they were writing on top of stuff that other people had written. We didn't know if even one kid would go in there and write on anything. But we had three mirrors, and you couldn't see what the first people had written because there was so much stuff, so much hate. So much pain, so much emptiness, so much abandonment, so much uh, life that was wrecked, written on these mirrors. It was just covered. I don't speak Spanish, and so someone had to translate it. And that probably wrecked me more than anything, is having someone stand in front of the mirror and read to me what this little girl said of a piece of garbage that she is. And I'm looking at this going, this, is, we can't, this is, can't be okay. We're not going to let this happen. And we grab the mirrors, and in the last session on this Saturday, we bring the mirrors in, we set the cross up, and I teach with every ounce of energy that I've ever taught with before, that if you know Jesus, your life is unbreakable. And we shatter these mirrors right in front of these kids. Just shatter them. And let them know that with Jesus, this stuff breaks, and you can be redeemed by the power of the resurrection of this Jesus are you, will you trust him with that? With all of the junk since birth you've been given, would you step out and say, I'll trust Jesus and this crazy American guy that's talking to me and not all this stuff that I know to be true in my broken life? And we gave them just a moment, and student after student started walking up to that cross. You could hear the, the, the mirrors breaking under their feet as they wrote their name on the cross saying, I want to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. As they're saying, my God and my God. And they're writing their name. And I can remember, it's, it's in my brain. Like I can see, in American events, we're so nice. An invitation to know Jesus happens and it's real and authentic. American students wait and wait and they're like, okay, Jesus, is this time, is this time? Band starts playing, it feels really pretty. One, one person stands up and goes up and says, I want Jesus. And then the domino effect happens and all, everyone starts to move. But we move in a nice line in an orderly fashion. Not so here. I said, if you want to know Jesus really as your Lord and Savior and you want to be unbreakable, you can come to this cross and you can make it known that you are a follower of Jesus. 
Like, there was no, let's wait on the band to play. There was one of my friends, Logan, who went with me. I'm like, Logan, you better grab the cross. They're going to knock it over. And literally, you can see the pictures. Logan's holding the cross up from behind because the students rushed the cross so much to write their name on it that they were not going to be hindered from getting to Jesus. I want that faith. And as they're writing on there, I'm a mess, you know, emotional. I'm looking at it going, this is unreal. How did I get to be a part of seeing this? And then I look at the back of the room and there's two rows of guys sitting in the back like this. They're at every, every youth event that you go to. There's that back row. My objective often is to just keep them awake. This time God just drew my eyes straight to them and I'm looking at them. And my heart starts breaking for them. Because I can see that his arms crossed. One kid, I can see his arms are crossed and a tear is coming down his face. But he's trying to look at anything but that cross. And I think he sees me look, and he doesn't want anything to do with my face either. Not many people do. Uh, and he's looking, and he's like, just everywhere. And I'm praying in that moment, Jesus, they need to see your face. And I don't look like them. I, I have a dad. I have a mom. I grew up with them. I'm not from here. They're having to use an interpreter for me. I am not speaking directly to that guy's heart, because he's not going to go up and say, Chris told me a story that sounded just like mine, and so I knew Jesus was real because I could relate. I'm looking at it going, you can't relate to me. Jesus, would you be so powerful enough, would you be greater than that kid's tear to send a man this weekend into this spot to speak to that kid right face to face and show him just like he is, he was, and now he's redeemed. And no one walked through the door that night. But then the next morning, one of the house parents from back to back was driven in specifically for one last session. He came in from Monterey, Rossiel and his wife Erica and their newborn baby drove up, two-hour trip. He steps up in front of these students, and he says, by the time I was five, I had five dads. They were all alcoholics. They were all abusing me and my mom, and so we kicked them out. My mom tried to run, and then she would get back with the next guy. By the time I was 18, I walked into a room, grabbed this guy who pretended to be my dad, my like sixth or seventh dad. I beat his face in, kicked him out, looked at my mom and said, I'm the man in the house now. I take care of you. No one beats you again. So I walked out, became a drug dealer, took care of my family. My mom started praying for me, and a few months later, I walk into church to see my mom and this pastor speaks the name of Jesus directly to me I walk down the aisle I'm standing in front he prays over me tells me about Jesus I confess Jesus now I'm a pastor at a church and I have kids who live in my house and back to back Jesus is real and you see the back two rows set up and I look up and I'm like are you kidding me and God's like no I'm God and I'm like oh yeah I forgot and Raciel stands in front of this room that he can talk to in a different way than I could ever talk to. And he looks at them at the end and he says this. And I was blown away by what God was saying through this. He looked at them and said, you are unbreakable as long as you're not going to be a victim. If you don't forgive your parents now, you never will. That's faith in the unseen right there. He invited me and a couple of the other staff to stand in the front and said, we'll stand up here and we will take on the role of your mom and dad that shouldn't have left you, that were never there for you, and we will let you forgive us and we will pray over you and then we will hug you like you should have been hugged since you were born. And the whole room started to stand up. And they started to move. And they grabbed, whether it was their house parent or the captain of the orphanage that they were from or the mother of the orphanage that they had come with, and they started walking over to them and start praying. I forgive you, Mom. I forgive you, Dad. Started just to rise up in the room. Antonio came from the back row to me. 
And he just wrapped his arms around me, and I wrapped my arms around him. And he just started to soak my shirt with his tears. I could just feel just this emotion coming out of him. And he started to speak over his parents. And as he spoke, I got to start praying, and my friend Elias was there, and he starts to translate so that Tonio can know, and like the three of us are right here, and I'm like, this is family. This is what it's supposed to look like. And as we're praying, I'm hugging him, I'm pulling out of my bones every hug I've given my two daughters. And I'm like, i got to give you everything I've ever poured into one of them. And I just want to pour it into you. I don't know if it means anything more or what, but I'm going to hug you like a dad you've never had. Because I know what being a dad is like. I love that piece. And if you've missed out on this, i got to just dump everything i got into you. And as I just start to try to love on him as much as I can, and then we pray, and then two more boys come up, and we start praying over them. It became reality to me. I know what it's like to get hugged by a dad. My dad was there for me. My mom was there for me. Just last night, my parents came to my daughter's birthday party, and before they left, my dad comes up and gives me a big bear hug. Same bear hug I've been getting since I was born. I know what it's like to be hugged by a dad. Tonio didn't. And before he got out of that chair, we didn't come show him what a a hug from a dad felt like. He stepped out on faith in the unseen and allowed Jesus to give him the hug that he needed in trust and in faith in something he never had. I want you to know that same Jesus is sitting in this room, in your present, ready to give you whatever you're unwilling to trust Him with in the past. Whatever has scared you, whatever has frightened you, whatever has hurt you, whatever has wounded you, whatever you have been callous toward, Jesus is standing at the front of the same room, ready to hug you like the dad who is going to pour into you, even though you've never seen it. Jesus says... Trust me with what you see and call me God. Trust me with what you haven't seen and you'll be blessed. Jesus, I pray that we would know this blessing, that we would know this truth, that we would live in this present, that we would eat cake today. I pray for the faith in the things yet unseen in the men and women in this room that we would step into your arms in spite of where we've been. Because, Jesus, there is no one greater than you. End of story. Amen. Have an amazing week.